this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, as we draw our attention to Isaiah chapter 22, a uh, little bit helpful to kind of look back where we've been. Isaiah 1, uh, again, a text that serves as kind of a charge uh, and also has a promise built into it uh, or baked into there. Uh, you see the, the charge uh, there for where the people were at, what they were up to. They were not up to what they should have been part of. Uh, and, and God offers to them the promise uh, that they might be transformed. And of course, you have the, the text there uh, in which talking about, though your sins were like scarlet, right, so they shall be like wool. And so that sense of being completely changed, completely transformed from the place that you had been at. We got to chapter 6. We got to a place where, uh, again, drew on the reformers' uh, sense of what they called quorum deo, or being in the presence of God. But Isaiah literally in a vision in the presence of God. And of course, uh, in that moment, uh, he has his own personal realization that he is a man of unclean lips, living amongst the people of unclean lips. And of course, again, we hear the promise, that promise of grace that comes as the seraphim swoops down and puts the burning coal on his lips, taking away, absolving him of that place of sin so he could step into that place of service. Well, we've come to this this week I'm reminded of something that I saw in the grocery store, and I picked it up. Uh, earlier this month, The Economist ran a cover story, uh, and that cover story was accompanied by a large black and white headshot of our former president. I don't know if you've seen this on the newsstands, but it's a, a picture of the former president there with cracks running throughout the entire image. It's almost like cracked cement uh, that you would, you would see on the ground. And the corresponding article, it opined on the right and wrong ways to hold the former president to account. And of course, when you read the news today, if you go into Fox News or even CNN or any type of news outlet, there's always some story about what's the progress looking like on, on that front um, or what's being decided. But this particular cover story carried a very serious title. And the, the title was The Reckoning. If Isaiah 22 were to be given a title, The Reckoning would be a good title for this chapter. But before we get to the particular reckoning that we're going to hear about in our own text, in our own chapter of chapter 22, Isaiah's prophecy actually speaks of a number of reckonings, uh, what we might call reckonings of the nations in the chapters that lead up to chapter 22 and even the chapter that follows. Here we have uh, a place where I imagine that people in that ancient world in Jerusalem would have had a bit of relief uh, as they hear these different oracles. Uh, there might be a sense of a little bit of delight, you might even say, that they might have said, finally, these folks would get what they had coming, these nations that had surrounded us. Uh, and the, the way that they're laid out is, if you go all the way back to chapter 13, uh, you start with the first kind of reckoning, or first oracle is about Babylon, and the last one in chapter 23 is about Tyre, and that spans a geographical kind of east to west of major cities, and it's kind of taken out everybody in between those points. Forms a kind of bookend. Uh, to the section. But between those sections, we see names of familiar places, uh, those others that are to be judged. We see Babylon and, of course, Tyre, as I mentioned before, but also Assyria. The king of Babylon is actually mentioned at one point. Philistia, Moab is in there. Damascus, Ethiopia are also on the list. Uh, Egypt's on the list. Edom and Arabia. So these are all different nations that are competing for resources. They're competing for space, uh, and they're, they're, if you're from the perspective of one who was living in Jerusalem, they would be your, your opponents. They would be the, the ones that you're constantly uh, fearing and building 
defenses to protect yourself from because you're at war with each other and you're, you're struggling for survival in that. But in Isaiah 22, all those oracles are fine, but Isaiah 22 gets personal. If these are about the nations, this particular one is now about the people themselves. And the reckoning would come home now to Jerusalem. The chickens have come home to roost is how we, we talk about it in our, in our time. And that ruin that's to come is going to be significant. It's described as a day of tumult and trampling and confusion, a battering down of walls and a cry for help to the mountains. That's what verse 5 tells us in chapter 22. The once divinely protected nation now is without defense because God has, according to verse 8, taken away the covering of Judah. Like I said, it's going to be significant. In the scramble to defend themselves from the onslaught, Here's what it describes in chapter 22, and this is all leading up to our particular text. It says in verse 8 that defenses would be sought. We're going to look for whatever we can find to to create defenses here. Whatever protective structures exist here, verse 9 tells us they would be reviewed. Fortification measures employed, we hear that in verse 10, and then in verse 11 there's steps that are taken for survival, and what they do is they basically develop and make sure they have a protected source for fresh water in case they're about to be, in case they get seized in the process. So there's all kinds of preparations that are happening there. And you'll note that in each of these verses, the people's response is located in what we might say in me. All right, so not me, it's Jimmy, but located in them personally. Or in this case, we see the passage, you. Notice it says, you looked, you saw, you collected, you made. And it's not located in what we might say is the other, or the holy other, or God. It's located in their powers. Now, remember this summer, we observed when we looked at uh, the, the Psalms of Ascent, we talked about watch the eyes. Notice the eyes of the psalmist. Where are those eyes looking? And here what we, we find here as we follow those, the eyes here of these people in Jerusalem at this time, when we follow their gaze, it's on their own solutions, right? They looked, they saw, and not on what we hear in the latter part of verse 11. But you did not look on him, who did it or have regard for him who planned it long ago. The contrast between where their focus should have been and where it ended up couldn't be more different. And their response demonstrates this. The appropriate response, of course, here in verse 12 would have been that in the day of the Lord God of hosts called, they would be weeping and there'd be mourning There'd be baldness in putting on sackcloth. That sounds strange to us in our day and age, but that response would be a response of repentance, of of movement away from where they'd been living in that Isaiah 1 injustice, that they would give up on those things and turn towards righteousness and have have a period where they admitted that they were in the wrong and show the sorrowful condition of their own hearts in asking for God's freedom and liberation in that. But their response in verse 13 is much different. Instead, there was joy and festivity, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. It says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If a song were to be written about the state of their heart and the state of their actions at that very moment when they should have been repenting, it would probably be one that borrowed the title from Frank Sinatra's My Way. They did it my way. Sure, the oracle concerns the valley of vision, as we hear in verse 1 of chapter 22, 
But clearly the vision of the people is all wrong. If they even have a vision, or if they even have vision to see. And the coming judgment can be seen in leadership. It can be seen in the leadership of the city. There's a switch that we're going to hear about. The leaders are going to be changed here. It's important for us to to see that shift that happens. Now, some of you already know this. Uh, I'm a twin. I have an identical twin brother named Joe. Uh, He was actually over last night. Um, Lots of fun. Really enjoyed Joe and his family. Um, And people would ask me before smartphones. They would say, do you got a picture of Joe? You know, I'm interested in seeing what your twin brother looks like. And oftentimes, I, I didn't carry around photos with me, so I'd pull out my driver's license and show it to them. Not a lot of people thought that was funny. <laughs> In fact, the, the trouble with telling us apart um, when we were growing up, there's different uh, seasons we'd go through where people would really struggle, and some people struggled more than others. I remember a manager at the McDonald's where we worked, so we both worked at the McDonald's restaurant, and of course, when you go to work for a restaurant like that, they give you a uniform, and our uniforms are identical, so it just made things a lot tougher. I remember this manager uh, trying to figure out some way to tell us apart early on. And here we are wearing these uniforms, and you have hats on so you can't see if the hair is different like that. And so they would examine us, which was always kind of a weird, peculiar thing to be examined in that way. Uh, Just staring at you, looking up and down to see if they could find any differences uh, about you that they could draw on to help them in identifying you. And they found one. They noticed that our shoes were different. I was wearing shoes that were black and brown. My brother had shoes, I think, if I remember right, they were black and gray. And they said, aha, so they created a memory device in which they said, James Brown. They looked at my shoes, Brown, Jimmy. That's how they came up with it. So they, here's how they discovered they could remember that. Well, apparently that failed. After a while, it's too hard to track someone walking around with shoes by looking down at the ground. And so they came back to me and they said, Jimmy, I need to have some sort of, we need something to go with here. Uh, I need some guidance of some kind to help me be able to determine uh, the difference between the two of you. And I, and I always was perplexed by that because I never got us confused. And, and so I shared with them, I said, well, this might help. We wear name tags. I could never figure out, why wouldn't you just read the name tag? Well, in our story this morning, twins are challenging to tell apart. But in our text, Uh, In particular, the two people that we're introduced to here, Shebna and Eliakim, they're easy to tell apart. The contrast couldn't be more different between these two leaders. You know what we see in the the text here? Shebna is self-serving. We see that with his tomb in verse 16. We see that with his splendid chariot in verse 18. But Eliakim is called as God's servant in, in verse 20. It's a key term, this idea of being God's servant. That's a key term in in Isaiah. It's one that's applied to Isaiah. It's one that will be applied to the nation itself, to Israel, and also one that's applied to this this one that's called the suffering servant and the one who will suffer for God's people. He's also described as the father of the people of Jerusalem in verse 21. So Eliakim's descriptions are not self-serving. They're about this other, serving others here. We also see that Shebna is described like an unstable ball in verse 18. But I like him a throne of honor, or excuse me, I like him as a secure peg. As we see with Shebna, he's described as a disgrace to his master's house. Um, But I like him, of course, as a throne of honor to his ancestral house. And Shebna in verse 19 is described as one who will be deposed 
whereas Eliakim will be established in verse 23. So two completely different pictures of leadership in these folks. And I think we can imagine here, if you remember the old Highlights magazine, uh, the comics of Goofus and Gallant, um, you could imagine here which one is Goofus and which one is Gallant here. But even more so, we might also recognize that Shebna's actions really serve as a reflection of the nation, what we hear earlier in chapter 22. The way that he's living, the types of actions that he's taking, these are the same actions the nation was taking, the same selfishness, the self-absorption. And what happens here is what befalls Shebna is what is to come of the city itself. Commentator Edward Young observes this when he, he writes that Shebna may have planned one end for himself, but Yahweh has planned another. And that's where the city finds itself as well. They might have been all their partying and celebration and all their uh, sense of we'll do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, to whoever we want. They might have discovered uh, in that that they might have had a future that they had planned, but Yahweh has a different one for them. But here note this, this line that runs throughout Isaiah. God takes no delight in that future that they're drawing up for themselves. We see that in the prophet's response back in verse 4 of chapter 22. It said, therefore I said, look away from me, let me weep bitter tears. Do not try to comfort me for the destruction of my beloved people. The messenger's grief here, which is visible, note that he's telling them uh, not to look at him. He pushes them away in, a, in their attempts to try to comfort him. So there's some sort of activity the, the prophet's doing here. He's not just some sort of theoretical type thing he's imagining, but he's actually weeping uh, at this point, and people can see that in the public. But that same weeping is shared by the one who has sent him, the one, same one who has commissioned him uh, for this work. We see in the language itself, in our translation, we don't pick up the words here, but the language is actually daughter of my people. And that same type of language is picked up in Jeremiah and Lamentations. This weeping here, this grief, these tears that are shed by Isaiah are also shed by the living God. That these tears, this grief runs deep. And destruction here isn't the final word. It's not the final word here. It's the final word in this text, but it's not the final word in Isaiah. The words comfort in my people, which show up in verse 4, will show up in, in one verse once more in chapter 40. When we get there, you'll see that the meaning is quite different to what's to come at that point. So what happens here? You've got Shebna. You've got a nation that's gone its own way a city that's living its own way. What hope is there for those people? Well, enter Eliakim. We've already observed that Eliakim is described quite differently from Shebna. He's called a servant. That's a place of honor. He's given a particular role and a purpose. And it's rather fitting that he's called to this role because his name literally means God will raise up. And so this one has been raised up. And even more so, he's the son of Hilkiah, Hilkiah, that name means God is my portion or my inheritance. So we're expecting faithfulness from this individual, from an ancestral line of faithfulness. We're reminded here in all of this of a longer story, of God's enduring faithfulness and promise, even when God's people cannot keep that promise and are unfaithful. And so God gives to this Eliakim not only the responsibilities once assumed by Shebna, Eliakim would also be given and charged with the great responsibility over God's people called Father, he of the house of David. 
If our passage were to end at verse 23, we might conclude that things are really starting to look up for the nation. We might say, wow, things have really grown quite rosy. But verse 24 introduces some kind of abuse. In verse 24, we have what's hinted here, some sort of misuse of Eliakim's office. Might be nepotism is what's going on here. That the younger generation may, may have not respected or had the same level of faithfulness that Eliakim had. Might be a series of power grabs from other officials who began to load up on Eliakim and say, look at his position, look how God has honored him and blessed him. Maybe I can make my move now. And so that builds up and builds up. So much so that those commitments that were held by the established leader, that faithfulness is not shared, again, by heirs or subordinates. And what's the outcome? Well, we know this in our own world. You start to see a loss of vision, see a loss of faith, see a loss of conviction. We see total loss. And here we see this in verse 25. We see ruin comes to the house. So Isaiah 22 leaves us on a ruinous note. Today's sermon ends on a ruinous note. Where's the hope in that? A broken city, broken leadership, broken commitments, broken promises, a lack of faith. Where is the hope? Where is the grace in all of that? This, of course, could be a cautionary tale to leaders. We know that leaders can undo their leadership quite quickly by falling into practices of injustice, practices of unrighteousness. We see that in our own world today. Someone gets caught in a scandal, and it ruins their ability to be a leader. It could be a cautionary tale for all people, our own individual lives. We could look at that and say, wow, look what comes of us when we allow ourselves to be promise breakers. We allow ourselves to be unfaithful. What type of ruin comes to us? And we might know friends and family. We might even know from our own story at some point in our journey where things got derailed because of our inability to be faithful. We might throw our hands up in the air and say, wow, this story is just one of those stories where, hey, you had Shebna, didn't seem like a good dude. And then you got Eliakim, seemed like a better dude. But you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't because both of them led to ruin. It could be all those things. But let me draw us to a different picture here. Something that might be a little bit more hopeful here. There's a book that was put together as a series of prayers. And maybe you've heard of this. It was, it was printed in the mid-70s originally. It's called The Valley of Vision. It's a series of uh, prayers of the Puritans that were assembled. And the very first prayer is, has that title, The Valley of Vision, which draws on uh, verse 1 of Isaiah 22. And as you read through those prayers... If you were to sit down, and it was a book assembled by Arthur Bennett, if you were to walk through each one of those prayers, uh, you would see prayers of confession. You would see people that are positioning themselves as they pray, as you pray through each one, uh, positioning yourself before the living God and, and reorientating yourself uh, towards a place of faithfulness, which is much akin to what was the Puritan message of folks who had a great attention to confession. And so, as we live that life, as we live in that place, which is the place that Isaiah is calling people to return to, when you live in that place, you live into what that early Christian writer said in John, in 1 John, actually, chapter 1, verse 9. 
that if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Of course, that promise is one that is founded on a secure footing. You might say an unmovable peg. You say, how can that be possible? We already heard the story of Eliakim. That peg got pulled out. How could it be set on a more secure footing? Well, if we go into the New Testament, if you reach into those pages and you step through each of the books and you make your way all the way through to the very last book in our Bibles today, you turn to the book of Revelation and you turn to chapter 3, you're going to read about a church there called the Church of Philadelphia. Not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But as you read about that church, you're going to read about one who brings a message to that church. And as you do, and as you stumble along those pages, you're going to hear about this one who is the Holy One, the True One, this mention of Jesus Christ. This one, we might say, is the Faithful One. And here's the words it says about them in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Well, that sounds familiar because that sounds a lot like Isaiah chapter 22. That there's one who is faithful. There's one who could step into that gap. There's one who can stand with us as we turn back to the living God who has been faithful, who remains faithful. And so as we turn our hearts to the living God, we do well to do as the old song says, to turn our eyes upon Jesus. And when we do, we find that freedom, we find that liberation, we find that promise that is prayed in Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, Your anger turned away, and you comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. May it be so in our day, in our leadership, and in our lives of faith. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you on this morning for your great love for us. We hear that promise of ones who are a beloved people who might receive your comfort. We hear those those promises of, of one who is faithful to us even when we have not been faithful. And so, Lord, as we've already repented this morning of the places of sin in our own heart and the places where we have pursued evil and we've trusted from your word, that promise that we can know forgiveness. Once more, we hear that promise here in Isaiah. And in hearing that, Lord, we are such a grateful people, grace recipients who now offer expression.